how do you get to that place where you have that type of an anointing over your life? You get to that place when you're following God's word. You can't live a compromised life and expect God's holiness and God's blessing and for God to use you to change the world when you're compromising in your life. Now, I like to be particularly careful about how I carry myself because I know this, bad things happen when you're alone. Now, when I teach about temptation and I teach about times when you are vulnerable as a person, I use this acronym, HALT, H-A-L-T, hungry, angry, lonely, and tired. When you're hungry, angry, lonely, and tired, or any combination of those, those are times when you need to be careful. Because those are often times when Satan tempts you. Lonely and being alone isn't a good thing. But you don't have to be alone to be lonely. You could be lonely in a crowd, especially when that crowd doesn't agree with the things that you believe. Have you ever felt before like you're the only one doing right? Have you ever felt like you're the only one living for God? It seems like everybody else is trashing themselves at parties. And when they're talking, you don't have anything to say. It seems like everyone else is planning to get drunk. And when you tell them that you're not going to do that because you believe in Jesus and have faith in him and want to live differently, they make fun of you. Or you're the only one who's a Christian at work or even goes to church. Or you're the only one who serves Jesus in your whole family. And every week you come to church while the rest of your family stays at home. It's tough being alone. Even if the reason you're alone is because you're the only one that is doing what's right. I've said over the course of the last several weeks that John, the Apostle John, writes the book of Revelation, this vision given to him by God, these messages to these seven churches and their instructions for us and also warning for us. So this week we're going to look at the church at Pergamos or Pergamum. Now Pergamum is a city that no longer exists today, but in Bible times, Pergamum was the capital of Asia. And it was one of the most beautiful cities in all of Greece. And Pergamum had the largest library in the known world. They had over 200,000 books. So really, really smart people would head to Pergamum to study. Pergamum was also known as a deeply spiritual place. Now you might hear the word spiritual and think godly. But that's not what I mean. The people in Pergamum worshipped that famous historic temples. There was a temple dedicated to Zeus, the king of the Greek gods. Another dedicated to another one called Acalypsis. There was a temple that would worship the god Dionysus, the god of pleasure and wine. But the most important and the most impressive of all temples that was found in Pergamum was the one dedicated to the worship of the Roman emperor. People paid tribute to the false gods, but they really worshipped the emperor as lord and savior. Pergamum was not an easy place for believers. It was lonely trying to follow Jesus in a city and culture dedicated to so many other gods. And in spite of that, the church was established. The church grew spiritually in this corrupt city. And from reading this letter, it's obvious that the church in Pergamum was surrounded on all sides by evil and corruption. The people were assaulted every day with the lies of Satan. It was challenging being the only ones doing right, the only ones serving God. They were literally in this continual fight between Satan's lies 
and God's truths. So if you're in a situation in your life right now where you're the only one that's doing right, the only one at work, the only one in your marriage, then you're in the same fight. Satan tries to sell you his lies. He wants to reframe your thinking and cause you to doubt the truth of God's word. If you feel alone for standing for what is right, listen to what Jesus says to the church and listen to the instructions and the warnings. Let's go to Revelation chapter 2, verse 12. It says this, To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, These are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. It says, verse 13, it says, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Jesus calls Pergamum the place where Satan has his throne. Anyone feel that way? Anyone feel like your office, your school, or maybe even your home sometimes is the place where Satan has his throne? In this case, it wasn't the church saying that. It was Jesus saying, this is the center of evil, the center of Satan's influence. He has made this city his home. Imagine living in Pergamum for a second. Your neighbor to the left of you worships Zeus. Your neighbor across the street from you is a priest who leads worship at the temple to the emperor. And your neighbor on the right of you worships yet another God. And they're all pressuring you at the same time to give up on Jesus and join with the rest of the city. Things are going tough for you. And you feel forgotten. Nobody knows I'm, I'm here. Nobody sees what's happening. I know God can't forget, but it seems like he has forgotten me. Isolated in the city where Satan lives, it's not difficult to imagine Christians in Pergamum believing the lie that God had forgotten them. When you believe the lie that God has forgotten you, it's easy to give up. It's easy to join the crowd. After all, where's God in your life? How could he allow these things to happen? That's why the words of Jesus here are so important. I know where you live. I know where Satan has in throne. They were not forgotten. God knew all things. And he says to them, and he says it to you today, I know where you live. See, the truth is God knows exactly where you are in your life. God sees you. God hears the hateful words of your spouse. He sees the difficulty at home. He sees the persecution at work. He knows the temptation at the office. He knows the ridicule you feel when you're the only one in your classroom to stand for faith in Jesus. He knows what you're going through. He's everywhere and he is aware. And you can trust him. You're not alone. You're not forgotten. He says, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Now, Jesus gives us a clue as to how hard it was to live in Pergamum and serve Jesus. Antipas, we know from history, was most likely the pastor of the church in Pergamum. The people in the city literally put the pastor of the church to death. Now, that's hard. Let me put it to you in modern-day context. Imagine if I was killed for serving Jesus, for preaching others, and sharing with others about his love. You knew Pastor Tom was taken to the town square in Butler. He was shot and killed dead just for preaching and worshiping Jesus. How difficult would that be for you to come to church the following Sunday? The natural tendency would be to look and say, look, if it happened to Pastor Tom, it can happen to me, and I didn't count on paying that high of a price, so I'm not going to show up. When you're under attack, it's easy to think, man, I just can't go on. 
The lie Satan wants you to believe is, it's not worth it. You can't keep doing this. His lying voice says to you, man, you can't keep going. Look at the price you're paying. It's too difficult. You can't keep doing this. And that lie becomes more and more powerful and more audible when you're lonely and tired. When you can barely summon the strength to get up, let alone move forward. Have you ever been there before? Are you there right now, maybe? But in spite of the pressure, in spite of the lie, look at what the believers in Pergamum did. They stayed true to God's name. Even when they lost their pastor and were tempted to give up, they didn't. They stayed faithful. Even when they were the only ones, especially when you're the only one. The truth is this. There is a reward waiting for you if you remain faithful. Don't quit. When you feel like you're alone, when you feel like nothing is working, there's a good verse to quote in Galatians chapter 6, verse 9. Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Don't quit. Don't buy into the lie that you can't make it. God knows what you're facing and will give you the strength to make it through it, but don't quit. If you quit, you'll never receive the reward. See, Satan's aim in your life is to get you to quit before the harvest but don't do it don't give him that satisfaction you've tried to share your faith at work but all they do is reject you don't quit you've invited your family to church hundreds of times and they won't come don't give up you've lived a consistent godly life at school and all it has earned you is being made fun of don't quit you've lost someone and something important i'm calling you not to quit do not become weary in doing good for at the proper time there will be a harvest if you don't give up the letter in Pergamum to Pergamum then switches over. It kind of has this sudden shift from this encouragement to correction. It was all going well up until this time. I know where you are. I know what you're going through. I know that you've stayed faithful. But look at verse 14. Verse 14 kind of switches over. It says, nevertheless, I've got a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teachings of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin. So that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Verse 15. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Verse 16. Repent, therefore. Otherwise, I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Now, this is kind of confusing for a second. So let me break this down exactly what this means. If you grew up in church, you might recognize the name Balaam, but you probably don't know Balak, and likely you definitely don't know who the Nicolaitans were. So it's tempting to skip over this part of the Bible. But let me explain to you what the Nicolaitans' basic philosophy was. They did not believe that there was any hard line between being a Christian and continuing on in pagan practices, working pagan, worshiping pagan gods. So it was okay for them to have a little bit of God and Jesus and a little bit of paganism as well. So it was a doctrine that was built on compromise. Everything's okay, man. It's all going to work itself out. The story of Balaam and Balak, that's a story that you find in the Old Testament in the book of Numbers. Balak is this evil king who wanted to kill God's people. So he sends Balaam, this spiritual leader, this prophet. And Balak, this evil king, goes to Balaam and, and he says to him this. He says, prophets can bless or prophets can curse. So I want you to curse the Israelites. And Balaam gave in to the king and he tried to curse God's people, but he couldn't do it. God literally stopped him. He could not curse God's people. 
So Balaam goes to Balak, the evil king, and he says, hey, since this curse won't work, let's try this. I want you to tempt them. If we get them to compromise, they will destroy themselves. So Balaam said, hey, look, here's what we're going to do. We're going to send in a bunch of beautiful women into Israel, and we're going to tempt them with sexual sin and with food sacrifice to idols. And the strategy worked. Israel fell for the trick. They gave into the temptation. They let the women come into their camp. Their attitude was, it's not going to matter. We're God's people. Nothing can, can curse us. A little sin is just okay. And God wouldn't allow an outside enemy to destroy Israel. But sure enough, Israel destroyed themselves. Because of their sin, a plague struck the people of Israel, and many people died. Israel made a series of small compromises on the road to failure because they fell for the lie. A little sin is okay. Don't worry. It won't hurt you. The people in Pergamum were being deceived by that same lie. They allowed and tolerated people in their lives and in the church who were leading them astray. Let me just pause for a second. I love you. My job as a pastor is to shepherd you. Have you ever seen a shepherd's staff before? Right? It's got like a little hook at the end, and it's got like a, a rod, right? A straight stick, right? You know what that's for? The little hook at the end is to reel in sheep that have gone astray. And the rod is to whack away wolves when they come in. That's my job as a pastor. We can't allow compromise to come into the body of Christ. The message to the perch in Pergamum was you're tolerating people that are encouraging you to compromise, and you're listening to teachers who are telling you to lower your standards. And God's message to this church was, I'm not okay with that. You need to repent. Now, Satan's wise. Y'all need to know that. He's not some sort of stupid guy. He's been around for hundreds of thousands of millions of years, right? He's a really wise guy. So he knows that you're too wise and you're too intelligent to go over the edge all at once and make a failure all at once. So instead, what he tries to do is he tries to convince you to make small compromises. If I don't lie on this business deal, I'm not going to get the sale. One little lie won't hurt. I'm just looking at pictures of other women. I'm not actually having an affair. Or it's, man, uh, I know I have an issue with alcoholism, but it's just one drink for the sake of friendship. So, Or it's just one lie. Or... Oh, it's just a joke. I just made a joke. It's not really hate. That wasn't really racist. There's just one party. I think I can handle it. There's some of y'all that there's certain environments that you should not be in. It's just a few words of gossip. I mean, he deserves it. What he did was wrong. I'm not a gossiper. I only sharing this with a few people. And then I had the Christian twist, so please pray for them at the end of it. I'm only cheating a little bit. God understand. God knows my heart. And with that small compromise you give in to the lie, a little sin won't hurt you. And the truth is, small compromises lead to major failures. What seems minor and insignificant isn't. Think about this. One little cut to your brake line and you'll have a car wreck. One little bit of rat poison can kill you. And we've seen recently how one little virus on one person can spread and destroy global economies. One compromise leads to major failure. 
Satan knows that you're not just going to wake up one day and be like, I think today is going to be the day that I'm going to have an affair. Right? But if he can convince you to look at pornography and think that that's not that big of a deal, just like Israel did, you're going to finish the job of Satan for him. Satan knows you're not going to just start embezzling millions of dollars from your company. But if he can convince you to lie on your expense report, you're just going to do the rest for him. See, Satan is smart. He knows you're just not going to go out and kill someone. Instead, he wants to convince you that being prejudiced is okay against Hispanics, against blacks, whites, Asians, against whoever. If Satan can get you to tolerate hate and prejudice in your heart, he's already got you. Before you know it, you're destroyed, though. But here's the key. You're not destroyed from Satan's attack. What you're destroyed from is from your own series of small mistakes that ultimately led to major failure in your life. Listen to me. It's not overstating this to think that every major failure starts with compromise. If you never compromise, you'll never fail. Think about it. Every alcoholic started with one drink, right? Every addict starts with trying it at least once. Pornography addicts decided to go to that website just once. And every affair always begins with a stray thought. If you refuse to tolerate small compromises, you'll avoid major failures in your life. God said to the church in Pergamum, he says to you, repent. Repent of compromise or it will destroy you. Stop it. Stop believing Satan's lies. Do you know what they call people who refuse to compromise on small things? In the old days, we used to call them holy. Now, we call them old-fashioned. We say, man, they're not living in the real world. They're unrealistic. They're out of touch with culture and society. I mean, I've had Christians challenge me. I'm not a, a person who drinks. I've had Christians challenge me. The Bible doesn't say you can't have a drink. Get over it. A drink won't send you to hell. That's fine. I know that. But I also know that I'm a pastor who spiritually leads people. And I know that in my congregation, I have people that are former addicts, and I don't want to give them permission to re-engage in their sin. You can call me old-fashioned. You can also call me faithful to my wife. You can also call me not addicted to any substance. And you can also call me not determined to have a major failure in my life. If major failure starts with small compromises, then I want to do my very best to avoid small compromises in my life. And you may say, well, Pastor Tom, think about all the things that you are missing out on in your life. Well, guess what? I'm going to take that risk. I'm willing to miss some small things that maybe wouldn't hurt me in order to avoid massive failure that would destroy me. Many of us here, we need to repent for allowing compromise and recognize that small compromises in our life are setting us up for major failures. In verse 17, Jesus tells this to the church in Pergamum. He says, he who has an ear, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give. Remember, I told you earlier, I said, don't quit. Jesus told the church in Pergamum, don't, per don't compromise, don't quit. And to him who overcomes, to him who stays faithful and true to my name and doesn't compromise, here's the reward. I will give some of the hidden manna. Now, now we don't have manna today. That's a Bible word. Once again, Jesus was painting a picture for the church in Pergamum by referring to a story that they all would have known. 
In the Old Testament, God's people were in the desert with nothing to eat. They were starving, and so God provided for them food in the form of manna. It's the kind of bread that they would eat every day. And God's people got their strength and their food every day from God. When you feel like you're standing alone for what is right, it's easy to resent anybody who tries to come alongside you to help you. Rather than reaching out for help, sometimes what we do is we further isolate ourselves. You say, man, I I don't need anyone. I can do this by myself. I don't need the church. I don't need you. I'll be fine all alone on my own. And here's the lie that Satan wants you to believe. He says, he wants you to believe you don't need any help. He wants you to believe that you can handle it on your own. The truth is you can't do it by yourself. You don't have the strength to do it. The only way you can do it is by depending on God every single day for strength, for daily bread, or your daily manna. Remember this, I want you to, this to capture your thought this morning. Self-dependence is the enemy of God-dependence. The truth is you need strength from God every single day. And God promises exactly that. If you stay faithful, if you won't compromise, if you won't quit, you'll receive manna. You'll receive daily strength from heaven. But Jesus said to the church in Pergamum, he also says to us today, I know you feel alone. Don't give in. I'll give you strength that you never knew you had. And in my strength, you're going to make it. The letter finishes this way. It says, I'll also give him a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. Jesus says, if you'll remain faithful and not compromise and not quit, not only will I give you my strength, I'll give you a white stone with a new name on it. Now that means absolutely nothing to you. Nothing in our culture. But to the people in Pergamum, Hearing this statement was huge. Now, let me explain. This thing means three things. This white stone with a new name on it means three things. In those days, when a trial took place, the defendant would be given a stone when the jury had reached its decision. If they got a black stone, it meant that they were guilty. If they got a white stone, it meant that they were declared not guilty. So Jesus says, I'll give you a white stone. You're not guilty. You're forgiven in my sight. See, one day you and I will stand before the throne of God, the ultimate judge. And if you remain faithful to him and refuse to compromise or quit, he will declare you not guilty. He will declare you forgiven. That's enough though, right? Wouldn't you think that that's enough? Wait, there's more. God changes you into something new. He gives you a new name. Not only are you forgiven, you have the promise of heaven, but you are transformed here on this earth. So what does that mean? What you used to be, you're not anymore. You've been changed. You're new. You've been transformed. Let me tell you something. There's a lot of used to be's in this room right now. And you've been transformed by God. You used to be an alcoholic. You used to be an addict. You used to be miserable and lonely and without purpose. You used to be a cheating spouse. You used to be a foul-mouthed sinner. You used to be a bitter and angry gossiper. But you've been transformed. You're no longer what you used to be, but instead you're new and you're made new by the life-changing power of Jesus Christ. The white stone written on it stood for forgiveness. It stood for transformation. But it went one, one more thing to the members of the church in Pergamum. See, in those days, they would celebrate the Olympics, their version of the Olympics in Greece. And the winners, once they had won, would be given a white stone. And that was their entry their little pass to enter into the victor's party afterwards. The white stone gave them 
exclusive entrance to this victory feast for those who had won. The white stone literally meant access. Now, I know you're probably ahead of me on this one, but Jesus was saying to the church in Pergamon, if, if you don't quit, if you'll stay faithful, if you'll not compromise, if you will overcome, I'm going to give you access to the ultimate feast. One day forgiven and transformed, I will welcome you into heaven. And on that day, your faithfulness will be worth it. And you won't regret the things that you missed by refusing to compromise in your life. You'll stand in the presence of God and you'll hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. Let us not become weary in doing good. Remember that? For at the proper time, we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. If you refuse to give in, if you refuse to compromise, that's what you get. You get to be forgiven. You get to be transformed in this life. And you get to be given access to the grace and the goodness of God, not only in the life to come, but here and now on this earth. That's how you walk with anointing. That's how God uses Christians to change the world for his glory. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Lord, thank you so much for your word. Lord, it challenges us not to stay the same, God. It challenges us, God, not to embrace the things of this world or the world view that we're indoctrinated with, but to embrace what does your scripture have to say? What does your scripture have to say if I do that action? What does your scripture have to say if I identify in that way? What, is your, what does the word of God speak to this? Because Lord, you have some tough things to say to us because you want what's best for us. You want your design for us. Lord, you are the author of life. Help us live and walk and embrace a life of integrity. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.